Well, as I mentioned earlier, we are studying Jonathan. Our series really is called The Sons of Encouragement on Wednesday evening, and we've mentioned a couple different fellows we've been studying so far. But this week we're studying continually on Jonathan. We started last week on the study of Jonathan, and we began by reading from 1 Samuel chapter 13, where we made a very special note that Saul, who is the king of Israel, Jonathan's father as well, did not follow the instructions given to him specifically by Samuel, which ultimately cost him then from reigning as the king of Israel. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 13, where Samuel says to Saul, you acted foolishly. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would establish your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. Well, note from the reading in 1 Samuel 13, in verses 13 to 14, that from Saul's foolishness, as Samuel indicates to him, he's acted foolishness, it not only cost him, Saul, but also cost his son Jonathan from being his successor as the king of Israel, which was customary for the king to have his son to be the next king in what would happen, if anything, to him. Now, with that in mind, Wednesday, we turned away from 1 Samuel 13 and moved to 1 Samuel 14, the very next chapter, which you also read on Wednesday. And we found in the Jonathan and his armor bearer go to battle against the Philistine army. Now, some would think with Jonathan's actions that he is taking with his armor bearer, just the two of them alone, to go against the Philistine army was truly an act of foolishness. Maybe a lot like his father's foolishness. Because the Philistine army is quite large. It's like the Russian army right now on the edge of Ukraine, ready to invade. I mean, the army was quite large, the Philistines, and you have these two guys, Jonathan and his armor bearer, about to go and battle against the Philistines. So people said it's either one of two things. That's either an act of foolishness, or it is an act of bravery and of courage. But is it only one of those two things? Because you go further and read the text in 1 Samuel 14, you find out that Jonathan's actions is actually because of his faith. He knows the Lord is capable of all things and can certainly overcome any size of army the Philistines have gathered. In 1 Samuel 14, verse 6, it says, Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows, meaning the Philistines. And he says, Nothing. Further in the verse, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. So notice, if you will, then, it's not an act of foolishness that has prompted Jonathan to act with his armor bearer to go and battle against the Philistines. It's not foolishness like perhaps was done with his father Saul. I mean, Saul, in his time as being king, demonstrated no faith. But now we see Jonathan, as we kind of narrow in on his actions, that Jonathan's actions are totally attributed to his faith. It's a major difference, if you will, between Saul, who was the first king of Israel and lost that chance to be the king, and his son Jonathan. The major difference is one had faith and one had no faith. Now, it could have even prevented Saul, son Jonathan, from even being the next king, or maybe even the good king of Israel as David would become the next king. 
But here's the point of telling you all that and rehashing even part of our study for Wednesday night. It, everything had to do with faith. Because the study then concluded with Matthew 21, which says this. When Jesus is speaking to his disciples, he said, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Which then, as we had these two verses of Matthew 21, it prompted a discussion to follow. Because now the discussion as we pertain to the faith, the question really came up then of this. Is this true? Is verse 21 and verse 22 of Matthew 21, particularly verse 22, it says, if you believe you receive anything you ask for in prayer, is it true that we will receive whatever we, whatever we ask for in our prayer? Is it true that we can ask for anything and everything and receive it? That's what the discussion commenced. And we get the discussion actually got to the point where we actually answered, no, it is not true that we will receive whatever and anything and everything that we actually ask for. I mean, think about it. I know a lot of people who have prayed to win the lottery, and it just did not happen. I know people who have prayed to receive a child that had to sometimes wait years rather than receiving it at the time they prayed. I know people who prayed for their spouse, a husband and wife, to actually receive one. I know people, and I'm one of them, who have prayed for the healing of a loved one. And it just did not come to pass. So then what does it mean if you believe you receive whatever you ask for in prayer? Well, maybe the quick answer is, as we maybe discussed before, is that it's God's will. You have to receive God's will. We've talked about that before, about how your answer to prayer is according to the will of God. But let's go just a little deeper this morning. I mean, yes, we must pray according to God's will, and likewise, we must accept God's will, whatever it may be. We acknowledged that truth, that fact, a month ago with the passing of Ray, that we must accept God's will. Recall during that message, that time, that we said that we must accept God's will, whatever it is, even though we may not like it, we have to accept it. But that message was then, and this is now. In case you did not know, it has been 30 days. Ray passed away on January 20th. Today is February 20th. And we still miss her. And I think that we need more. I think that we, we need more, actually, than to say it's just God's will. Because I think, actually, I know all of us still having grieving and mourning. Ray was a very active, integral part of this church. And we still have that period of grieving and mourning. And it's been a, a whole month. But we still have grieving and mourning. And add in the fact that this morning we gathered here where I talked about Nora, she's still battling. 
And she's having the good days and the bad days that go along with the battle. And she's receiving the good news. It did not spread, but the bad news is still an aggressive type of cancer. We have Claudette, who's here this morning, that lost her husband between Christmas and New Year's and is still grieving in the morning. The Rodenberg baby that we talked about this morning, just a month old, passed away. Well, imagine, I can't really imagine truly what the family is experiencing. And we go on and on and on about all these different things happening in the church. There's Daniel. There's, there's, we talked about Tom earlier, and there's Carly and, and Courtney. And I mean, there's all kinds of different things happening in the church continually. I mean, to say the least, it has been a very difficult month to two months within our church community and our church family. So having recognized that, our message today is meant to help with our grieving, with our mourning, that we're all still experiencing. And to point us to the truth that help is near. Help is near. And help is even closer than we think it is. Or we even tend to realize. And the help that we really need comes from the Lord himself. Now many texts in the Word of God tells us this truth, that we can receive help from the Lord. But the one that I was thinking of last week, putting all this together, thinking about everything that's happened, the first one that came to my mind was Psalms 121. We're going to read Psalms 121. It's only eight verses in length. We're going to stand and read it, but we're going to find a little bit about the psalm and then apply it to our lives. So stand with me this morning as we do to honor the reading of the word. We look into the psalms. We go to Psalms 121, eight verses. Let's read them together. It says in Psalms 121, verse 1, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Father, we do come before you today, Lord, still grieving and mourning the people we have lost, Lord, that we love. and Perhaps, Lord, even recognizing today that goes deeper than that, perhaps that's now, all that's happening here today, Lord, there's all their kinds of burdens and afflictions and difficulties and heartaches placed upon us. So we recognize, Lord, that's where we may be in life. We also need to recognize today as the message shall tell us this truth. That you are near to us. You're never far away. You're always available for us to turn to and receive the strength and the comfort that truly you can provide. Yes, Lord, we're thankful today that help is near. And you are the source of strength and help that we need. So we invite your spirit now to lead and to reign and to guide us here this morning. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Well, you may have seen before that when you begin to read through the Psalms, a noticeable feature is that they are very versatile. 
meaning that numerous applications can be received as you read through the 150 psalms available throughout the book. But undoubtedly, we should acknowledge also then that the author of each particular psalm writes upon a specific affliction and or occasion that they maybe are in the midst of. And because we're not privy to the author to maybe know exactly who the author is, and certainly not even to their life, we fail at times to understand exactly what the situation was unfolding in their life that prompted them to write this particular song. However, that does not stop pastors and scholars from digging deeper and trying to get into the mind of the author to find out what the occasion was that prompted the writing of any particular song. So in the matter of Psalms 121, a couple of suggestions have come to mind to be entertained among pastors and scholars over the years. And the first you find really is this then, that perhaps this particular Psalm 121, only eight verses in length, was sang by the pilgrims, the people who were actually on their way to Jerusalem for one of the annual festivals. There were three festivals that they were required to attend, particularly the men. Sometimes the family would travel with them. But the three festivals was the Unleavened Bread, the Festival of Weeks, and also the Festival of Tabernacles. When it came time, they would travel to Jerusalem, and wherever they traveled, sometimes it suggested they would have a particular psalm to be recited as they go. That's one possibility. The second possibility exploring the psalm is that maybe it was voiced and expressed by those people who were returning from exile when they were placed in Babylon. They were returning home and they expressed a particular psalm. That's the second possibility. But the strongest possibility among scholars of why the particular psalm was created and made by the author was perhaps it was in the days of Hezekiah when the Assyrian army was threatening Judea and Jerusalem. If this is the case, then we need to be able to understand truly what Hezekiah was facing. Because the situation was dire circumstances. People were desperate. People were awaiting the onslaught of the invaders who are the Assyrian army. Hope seemed minimal. Some wondered aloud, where is God? Much like it may have been on 9-11. People wonder, where is God? For the Israelites, that particular moment when they think the Assyrian army is coming in to take Judea and Jerusalem, the future looks bleak. We can't truly picture it, but try to place yourself there because news has come. If you're there in Jerusalem, the beloved city, all of a sudden you hear that the Assyrians are on the march. That dreaded army is advancing, and rather quickly because they have mopped up everybody and everything around the countryside. Every surrounding area has already been taken by the Assyrian army. And now they're on the way to your city. And people are scared. They're frightened. Because they've heard about the terrible tactics that the Assyrians used. Much like we heard years ago about ISIS over and over. The men talk about these tactics among themselves. And they maybe secretly and, pro- and silently the best they can, even whisper it to their wives. But it's maybe the children overhear it. As the children overhear it, maybe they even share it with other children in the community. It's all the whispers of the atrocities, and the murder and the torture and the bloodshed. It's all about to become real for the inhabitants 
of Judea and Jerusalem become real to the point where they recognize. But the Assyrian army, that many people were surviving. So yeah, fear is everywhere. And perhaps then there is Hezekiah writing this song as that is about to happen. So notice, if you will, then, a feeling of hopelessness and helplessness hangs in the air, desperately calling out for help, help to overcome. So the author then, maybe Hezekiah, begins to write, where shall my help come from? Desperately seeking help is where shall my help, our help, come from in this invasion of the Assyrian army? And as soon as he asks the question, it's like the answer is provided in verse 2. That the help will come from the Lord. My help comes from the Lord. Now we need to recognize that truth here this morning. It's our central theme, really, if you will, that in our time of sorrow, in our time of grieving, in the state of mind that we're actually in, Help we need. We need help. Help we need to persevere and overcome is directly from the Lord himself. That's where we receive our comfort and strength, directly from the Lord himself. In our time of sorrow and sadness and grieving and mourning, of any type of affliction that may occur in our lives, we need to recognize that truly the help we need to sustain this and carry us through comes from the Lord. Now, getting back to the Psalms of 121, there's eight verses, but it's interesting. As you begin to dissect the Psalm even further, as the author's situation, we maybe begin to consider that the Psalm is written almost like in, in two people speaking. Like you get verses one through two, it's like the first person in the singular is written, where it says, I lift up my eyes, and where does my help come from? Like the speaker is looking for some help and encouraging himself in the Lord. And somehow, maybe in verses 2 through 8, the remaining part of the psalm, it's like written in the third person singular. Like the answer is provided, like the speaker is being answered by another person who points him towards the omnipotent, powerful, sovereign, mighty God. Now, with that observation, that fuels then the idea by many scholars and pastors, their viewpoint that, yeah, this first person speaking could be Hezekiah, where he asked, and then the second person speaking the remainder of the psalm could be Isaiah answering him. But whatever and whoever is writing the psalm and or speaking, the psalm provides a fitting application for every one of us here today. What is the application? As I mentioned earlier, and have now repeated myself, we're still in a period of mourning and grieving. Everyone mourns and grieves at a different rate. Not one of us are the same. So everybody naturally will grieve a little differently. But yet there's one thing we have in common. No matter where we are in the grieving process, no matter where we are in life, no matter what is happening to us at this very moment, there's one thing all of us have in common. And the thing we have in common is that help is near. Help from the Lord is near to us than even we think that it is. The Lord is near to help us 
and whatever we're feeling, whatever we're going through. You know, fortunately, we have a God who never leaves us and never forsakes us. Scripture attests to this truth many different times, but especially in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 8, where it's first written, it is the Lord who goes before you. Joshua and Moses received this. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. But yet it's repeated in the New Testament with the author of Hebrews. I will never leave you or forsake you, as written in the final chapter in verse 5. So it points us to the truth that God is with us. Day and night, God is with us, never leaving your side. The psalmist declares that, even refers to it in verse 3 and 4. He says, God will help. He, he, he keeps you who will not slumber. Verse 4, he will neither slumber nor sleep. Revealing to us that God is always available. He never sleeps, never slumbers. Always available to comfort, to strengthen, to encourage, to offer hope. And to help us through the most difficult storms we face in life. And speaking of storms, last week on the news I heard that the emergency disaster relief fund that's being offered to the residents that survived the deadly and damaging tornado that come through the big part of Kentucky back in December, I think it was December 10th of 2021, that that is coming to an end. I mean, I've been a tornado back when it passed through here in our parts back in 1990. I think it was June when it went through Hazleton, as was at my parents' house, before it went to Petersburg, it did a lot of damage. There's some damage in Hazleton, but nothing like what happened to Petersburg. I believe it was June of 1990. As we went through that tornado, I, I can remember it, and I can say this then, that the emotional element from such an event never does go away. It never does truly end. So even though the disaster relief fund's coming to an end, the emotional element does not. Even closer to home, one of my fellow bus drivers at North Gibson here in Princeton, he was telling me that his daughter lives in one of the areas impacted greatly by this tornado. She lives in Eddyville, Kentucky. They had just recently purchased a new house. Right before the tornado came in, it was completely, utterly destroyed. But what he's sharing with us is that as that particular evening was unfolding, he was on the phone with her. They were all scared, naturally. Tornado coming in, high winds, wind, uh, rain, and all of that. I mean, when a tornado funnel cloud starts to come to them, they, they began to pray. She was on the phone. Him and his wife was with her on speaker trying to calm her down, praying for her as the tornado's getting closer. And it's all getting closer and closer to continue to pray. All of a sudden, the phone was silent. So now they are distraught. Trying to figure out what just happened to our daughter. Wondering if we're ever going to see her again. If she was okay. Was she swept away, badly hurt, or maybe even worse? They're, they're trying to figure all this out in this moment of silence when had you been talking to her. Also, the phone, there's nobody on the other end. So he told me all he could do was, well, I mean, he has to wait. 
But while he's waiting, he begins to continue to pray to our God, the creator, the maker of heaven and earth. He prays to the same God. And then suddenly he gets another phone call. I don't know what time frame he lapsed, but he gets another phone call that it's her and she is okay. But the house was completely destroyed. In fact, she told him that in one particular room, the Bible was opened and was not even touched. The rest of the house was destroyed. So they all began to weep. I mean, it's tears of joy, tears of relief, but also at the same time, tears of sadness and sorrow for those people who did not, did not survive. You know, those types of things we don't quickly recover from. It takes time. It takes a lot of time. But most importantly, we need to recognize it takes help from the Lord to help us recover. Because when tragedy suddenly and unexpectedly occurs, it completely knocks the wind out of yourself. It's like it takes the breath completely from you, leaving you helpless, and sometimes without any hope. And that is when you need God. You must turn to God at this moment to sustain you, to lift you up, to carry you on, to help you overcome the pain, the sadness, the sorrow, and the grief. It's like our central theme again tells us in our sorrow, grieving state of mind, the condition that we're in, the help that we need to overcome that and to persevere comes only from the Lord. As we receive our comfort and strength to help us, even have the desire to wake up to the next day. It was interesting that in modern day, it is often taught that when tragedy occurs, when tragedy suddenly strikes, or things begin to happen and unfold that we're not prepared for, that we should be tough through it all. It's taught to children, particularly in America at a very early age, that you don't even need the times to maybe even show any emotions and certainly no weeping. But I want to tell you, the scriptures suggest something completely separate from that. It's completely otherwise. Because when you read John chapter 11 and you get to the story about Lazarus, Jesus' friend, you find out that Jesus even himself, in John 11:35, you find out two words, Jesus wept when Lazarus died. I mean, it tells us that we have a high priest who knows precisely our situation unfolding in life because he's not immune from that. It tells in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. I mean, Jesus was fully God, but he's also fully man. And Jesus had emotion and he showed them upon many occasions. You can find his compassion he had for people, people particularly who had these physical ailments, the blind, the lame, or whatever. He had compassion for the lost. At times, Jesus expressed frustration. A few times with his disciples, but upon many occasions with the Pharisees. As we mentioned, he had the weeping, the sadness associated with his friend Lazarus when he died. And you can even note in the scriptures where Jesus even showed anger when the people in the outer court had all these money changers and things going on and they defiled the sanctuary. He got angered over all this. 
So what does all that mean? It means that we have someone who understands. It is always near to help us then through any sort of difficulty, any type of affliction, any time we're in sorrow and sadness that ever enters our lives for whatever reason. We have someone who understands. It is the Lord who strengthens us, who picks us up and carries us in his very safe arms. When we have any kind of difficulty, any type of affliction, any sadness, or sorrow, it is the Lord who helps us through it all. And all we have to do is turn to him. It almost sounds too easy. We just need to turn to him and cry out to him. And we do, he is there 24-7, never sleeping or resting. He is there when others cannot be there. I mean, think about this. When we have suddenly an unexpected tragedy or any type of event that happens in our lives, where is our first impulse to turn? It's going to be the family and to friends. The kings begin to slow down a little bit. We might even consider some counseling, some psychiatrists. There's even self-help books to get us through that. But those sources where we may have the first impulse to turn, I want to tell you, they'll never be sufficient enough. Never be sufficient enough. They can't give us the strength the Lord can give to us. By the way, why do you think we sometimes turn in our first impulse to family and friends, co-workers and people? But why do you think we sometimes turn to that? I think there's sometimes a reason we have a first impulse to turn to people who are near us and they're very present to us is because we can audibly hear them and we can see them. So our first impulse is to turn to someone we know that can be there because we can see them and we can hear them. But as Christians, we need to remember that we have our faith. We have much more. We have our faith. And we have to exercise our faith and cry out to God. No, we cannot maybe audibly hear him. Maybe we cannot physically see him. But he is there. He's present. He's even closer than the closest friends we have, our co-workers, our family. He is there, a very present help in trouble, in distress, in heartache. As the psalmist declared in 46.1, God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Charles Swindell takes this particular psalm and he adds a thought. He says, God is our refuge and a very present help when terrorists strike, bridges fall, tunnels cave, planes crash, and more. God is a refuge when you are all alone. He is a refuge when you wake in the night filled with fear and cold sweat breaks out. He is our refuge in periods of loneliness. He is your refuge, your strength, your very present help when events transpire that you cannot understand. Well, Swindoll is completely correct. We seldom, if we ever, understand why things suddenly and unexpectedly happen whether it be a tornado, cancer, or whatever it may be that affects our lives. We seldom can make sense of that. And we probably never fully understand. But Swindoll is correct that God is our refuge. A help when we need it. Help is near 
help is very near. And it is the Lord who is there to help us. The psalmist declares in this particular Psalm 121, verse 5, he said, The Lord is your keeper. He is watching you day and night. You're coming and going, overseeing everything that you're doing. He declares also in verse 5, The Lord is your shade on your right hand. That is how close he is to you. The shade on your right hand comes from the Lord. That's how close he is to you and available. Verse 8, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. He is available all the time when we have some sort of heartache, distress, sadness, sorrow. All we have to do in that particular moment, maybe even the moment we're going through now, is to cry out to him. Lean upon him. Just pour your heart out to him. Help is near. And the psalmist declares our help that we need. Where shall my help come from? Your help comes from the Lord. Every once in a while, a, a song comes along that the radio may play that kind of rises to the occasion and begins to speak to you. Whatever situation you may be having, the song sometimes just has the ability to, to just get your attention and begin to speak to you no matter what your circumstances may be. Now I listen to Caleb quite a bit when I'm coming and going, even driving a bus, different things. I listen to Caleb in a recent song by Zach Williams. Grabbed my attention. Inspired this message. But also, it just spoke to me to share it with you today. The video is going to be queued up in just a moment. We're going to end with actually with this particular video. The song's last over three minutes. That before you see it or before you hear it, let me let you know that the video accompanies the song of Zach Williams, which the song, by the way, is called Heaven Help Me. But the video is quite simple. It's not really a, a video of, any, of Zach Williams himself. It's a video of the words of the song. So as you begin to hear the, the song be about to be played, Heaven Help Me by Zach Williams, you have also at the same time on the screen the words. So the video with the words helps us process what we're hearing. So I encourage you to listen but also to read as you go to make sure we get the full effect of how God is near that can help us through any situation that we're having. And I can't find the words and I can barely breathe I'm falling on my knees Heaven help me, heaven help me And I can't feel you near And I can't hear you speak I'm falling on my knees Heaven help me, heaven help me Help me Help me 
cry out. The Lord is there, waiting to hear our cry. He knows exactly the situation that we're unfolding into our lives at the very current time. Nothing takes him by surprise. And he's ready, willing, and able to help. All we have to do is cry out to him. Cry out to the Lord today. It's only natural to grieve and to mourn for everything that's happened in the church the last couple of months. We can't get over it that quickly. So cry out to God today, whatever you may be feeling, because help is near, Father. Let me thank you today, Lord, for this message, quite simple, but yet applicable to our situation. We find ourselves today, Lord, still missing certain loved ones. People in the church, Lord, still going through struggles. It's not just a death of a loved one, Lord, a loss. There's other situations unfolding, the cancer, the sicknesses, surgery coming up, Lord. These different things affect us. It's just part of life, Lord. We may not like it, but it is part of life. And we know then that when we have these things that unfold and to happen and tragedy strikes our family, Lord, that we have one true source to always turn to that's always there. And we're thankful today, Lord, to recognize it is you. And you're always there for us. So today, Lord, we just turn ourselves to you as individuals, a family together. We turn 
to you, Lord. And we cry out, help me. Help me, Lord. Give me strength. Give us strength, Lord, for the next day. In Jesus' name I do pray. Amen.